Welcome to our Lead to Succeed podcast, where we share leadership and business growth insights, both from our own experiences and that of our guests. We're the hosts. I'm Rebecca Jenkins, founder of Argen, helping companies to grow by finding, gaining and growing the best clients. And I'm Callum, sharing my perspectives from both being an entrepreneur and working in a variety of different companies. Whether you lead a team or a business, you'll find practical tips, inspirational insights and ideas as we discuss a wide range of leadership topics. So with that, here's today's episode. Welcome, welcome back to Lead to Succeed and we have a very special guest with us today, Dominic Monkhouse. You're going to be well, I'm impressed. You're going to be impressed with Dominic's business prowess and his achievements in business. So I'm going to just just give a bit of an intro. I'm sure Dominic will want to embellish it. But before I do that, I want to say thank you very much for listening and giving us your feedback on the podcast. We really do appreciate it. So Dominic Monkhouse, now let's give you a bit of an introduction to him. He has scaled two tech businesses from zero to 30 million. And that isn't, that's not where it ends. It goes on to, he did that in five years. That's quite a staggering achievement. And we'll talk about this as we go through the podcast. But uh, the reasons why that was um, so successful, two key points that Dominic shares, and that is it's around execution and innovation. So we're going to be focusing on those as we go through this episode. And another story that I thought was really fascinating is that Dominic faced a business, um, was involved in a business, and they only had 90 days of cash left. Now, how many of us have been in a situation where we've faced some cash flow challenges? I certainly have. And we're going to be getting some tips on Dominic and how did you, how Dominic managed and coped with that. But also in this business, Dominic turned around the net promoter score from minus seven. So we can imagine how unhappy clients and employees and everybody involved in the business were. And he turned that round to plus 55. Dominic is the author of two books. The first one is F, Plan B, and you'll know what the bit that I've missed out there, what that refers to, How to Scale Your Tech Business. And secondly, Mind Your Own F in Business. So you're quite happy, like you like to use the F word then, Dominic. Welcome to the podcast. Rebecca, it's lovely to be here. So let's start off with a different question. I've given you a full intro there. Tell me what have I missed out or something about you personally that might be very interesting to share with our listeners. I I own a small pedigree herd of belted Galloway cattle. Ah. Are those the long-haired ones? They well they've got they've got a double coat so you can leave them outside all year round but they're black and white stripes. Black and white stripes. So a black cow with a white stripe down the middle. Ah, very nice. And why do you why do you have those? Uh, so I don't have to cut the grass. So <laughs> we we we've got a small small farm down in the New Forest, and when we're working with clients, we have a building here that we've created to bring CEOs and their leadership teams off site. Yeah, very nice. Um, 
because I got bored of either being in people's offices and they would step out and never come back or we'd be in a hotel and we'd be in the basement and the food would be awful and it was too hot or too cold or too small or the tech didn't work. And we created some space where we knew we could get people to do better work. Right, well, let's do a bit of an introduction then, Dominic, the sort of work that you do now. And then let's go into what do you think makes a great leader with all your business expertise and experience? I, I work with entrepreneurial CEOs of fast-growing, purpose-led businesses. And that's different from professional CEOs because I think entrepreneurial CEOs often have vision but might be rubbish at execution. They might be often late for stuff. They might have disorganized desks. Um, they might have ADHD or dyslexia. Um, but they're they definitely have an appetite for risk and they're optimistic. Uh, and so I coach CEOs that look like that because that's, that's how I am. And so rather than tell them that they need to be more organized and tidy their desk or do things they're rubbish at, I coach the CEO and the leadership team to allow the CEO to be great at what they're great at and build a team so that they can scale their business. Okay. And what makes a great leader? I think curiosity and resilience. I think if you could have, if you could show up with both of those two things, then you've probably got probably a long way down the road. Well, I think with the, with the type of CEOs you work with, I'm sure resilience turns up in spades because... <laughs> If it doesn't, you're not going to be successful in, in that role of, of growing a business and it being generally, you know, your own business. So I would say you, um, that's, a, that's a key aspect. But let's talk a bit about the execution side. What do you mean by that? I, I think ideas are worthless. What you have to do is you have to turn those ideas into something. I think um, the job of a business is to get and keep customers. So we have to be doing something that other people value. And if other people value it, they'll part with their cash. And if we do a great job over time, they'll stay with us. And the cheapest marketing is word of mouth, which is why I love Net Promoter Score. Uh, one of the clients we work with at the moment spends no money on marketing. Every client they win refers them another three clients. Um, and so that's sort of my ideal or another client we worked with in the past, 95% of their business came through the channel so that they had almost zero marketing costs as well. So I think this whole, you know, getting and keep getting, delivering value and keeping customers is, is what I think of as execution. And when you say you work with CEOs in this area, what do you see as being the biggest challenge with execution? So what are the barriers that you have to kind of help CEOs overcome when we talk about execution? I, I think it, there's a few changes depending on the size of the business. Mm -hmm. So when you're up to maybe sort of 15 people, the CEO had an idea, put together some helpers, launched a business. Um, many companies, many, many companies get stuck at that point. Uh, the CEOs then 
this, the business can't grow bigger than their span of control. Often they're not great at detail. Often they keep changing their minds. Um, you need to build a team and that sort of, you can create a leadership team and that gets, you can get you to 10 million. The, at that point, the CEO has got to be a full-time CEO and not the sales director or the marketing director or the technical director. And then as you go from 10 to 100, you've got to put in a management team beneath that leadership team. And each of those phases has its own challenges around execution. And often I see one of the things that shows up, even in some large clients that we work with, is that the CEO is the only person in the organization whose job it is to hold people accountable. And so their leadership, it's, so they look like the sort of, it looks like hub and spoke. And you can see what happens is that when the business is smaller, the CEO is the smartest person in the room. And so everybody gets used to asking their opinion and getting their approval. And then somehow often those behaviors stick and you get, you get to the point where the CEO is just totally overwhelmed and isn't very good at having a difficult conversation. And so the organization hasn't learned how to be accountable and the CEO isn't very good at holding people to account. And so the, you've got to then unpick that and say, okay, well, what behaviors would we have to put in place? What structures could we put in place? We use a framework called OKRs, objectives and key results often to help clients to do that, thinking about outcomes rather than tasks. Humans love tasks. So at one extreme, you might have a dysfunctional um, leadership team where they turn up to the weekly management meeting. Everyone gets 20 minutes. They talk for 19 minutes. It's like a filibuster, leaving no time for questions. Mm -hmm. they don't, the team don't ask each other difficult questions. If the CEO doesn't pounce on them, they've got away scot-free and they're, they're safe to... Mm -hmm. And in their presentation, they just say how busy they've been. And so there's focus on task and not outcome. Um, and I think that's, it's unpicking lots of those things so that, I mean, we were talking before we were recording about, you know, waiters in restaurants or people doing what you expect them to do, going the extra mile. And, you know, that doesn't happen in organizations where people are task focused because they, it doesn't matter whether you do the task well or poorly, as long as you just do it. Whereas if you're thinking about outcomes, say customer satisfaction as an outcome, then it doesn't matter what you do, how do we get the customer satisfied? That's a very different way to look at how am I going to spend my time? And what have you told me what to do or do I have the latitude to decide what I'm going to do? And so that's powerful in terms of tip, dipping into the discretionary effort that's up for grabs, which is probably about 40% of people's energy can be unlocked if they feel able to to do a good job and that they own the outcome and that they i mean i i think that must be much more fulfilling if you're an individual in a business and you've been given that latitude to work your own kind of skill set and be creative in undertaking the tasks i mean how much more rewarding does that feel than being just told this is the task you have to do well, you see, the, the task thing, I mean, I, you know, you, you ring your mobile phone company for support and some poor chap in India picks up the phone yeah. and they've got a script and they've got to fill in the boxes and tick next and tick next. And, you know, it's the lowest common denominator. You're never going to be wowed by that, right? The best they can hope for is that it meets your low expectation. Yeah. Uh, whereas often, I think some of the, sometimes people go, uh, 
how can I help you get the outcome that you want? And, you know, I remember having calls with people where they say, I'm going to ask you some questions. I just need you to say yes. Just ignore what I say to you. Some drivel and they go, you say yes. And they go, do, 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 right, brilliant. Now I've, I've conned the system into getting you the upgrade that you wanted. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll appear in 24 hours. And it's like they've had to work around the system to deliver you what you wanted. One of our, one of our uh, clients is a company down in Australia. And they have a story that they tell in their onboarding. And the lady's on the call center and a phone call comes in and the husband says, look, my wife's on her way to the airport. And I know she hasn't engaged global roaming. And I know you can't do it when you're overseas. So what can you do? And the, the lady on the support desk said, right, look, where is she? What airport? What's she called? Gets a phone out, puts a SIM card in, gets in a taxi, goes to the airport, finds his wife, gives her the phone. And they tell that story and then they say, and the customer wasn't even a customer of our mobile phone solution. He was a customer of ours and he knew that we have, you know, net promoter score in the eighties and he hoped we would help because he knew his mobile phone provider wouldn't help. And, and we were able to help him and solve his problem. And so you then tell stories like that, those myths and legends tell people on day one that they have latitude to not ask for manager approval and to be creative. And then, you know, they can, this company have their own uh, chief storyteller to try and immortalize the best, the best stories each month. I think stories like that are incredibly inspiring. And I could share my own experiences in, in that, uh, in that area when I'm not going to go into detail, but you know, legendary uh, customer service experiences with hotels like Ritz-Carlton and Southwest Airlines. But, you know, if you apply for a job at Southwest Airlines, and you may know this uh, yourself, Dominic, the receptionist makes a contribution to that person's applicability to the role based on how they engage with them at reception. Totally. And this is what it's about, isn't it? It's, it's having the right attitude, the right mindset, to be fantastic at the role. Um, not, I, not, I, not... I, was I remember chatting to the head of uh, VP for HR at JetBlue. And he said he hires people who smile when they enter an interview because they somehow they've got genetic disposition to smile in, in a stressful situation. And he said they make amazing hostesses because like there are times when it's going to be stressful and what you want is you want people to just have this natural propensity to smile in the face of adversity. So that, yeah. makes that, that makes the customer experience so much better. Well, we started talking about execution and you talked about, kind of, you know, resilience and having those difficult conversations. So do you think that when you're executing on a plan and you're focusing on those outcomes, that it's important to be able to address those difficult conversations? So, and if you do think that, could we go into what's the best way to address those difficult conversations and provide some tips for the business owners who will be listening to this podcast? Yeah, I, yes. So I, I love uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Mm -hmm. um, although it can be misused. And she said, look, if she had a time again, she might have not called it Radical Candor. 
she might have called it radical kindness, but she said, look, mm -hmm. if a middle-aged woman had written a book called Radical Kindness, it would never have been an international bestseller. So, um, and I think there, what it says is, look, we, you start with from a position of trust and you say, I, I'm going to give you some feedback because I care about you and I'm going to be direct with you, even though that's probably going to cause me some dis some distress and so to make that to do that example with with people i say look if i had spinach in my teeth would you tell me right would you tell me if i had spinach in my teeth you'd have told me already i would have done yeah <laughs> <laughs> right well when i do this about 30 percent of people will say no i'm not going to tell you that that feels too difficult for me to tell you that for me i, I think i can't i can't understand that at all but there are 30% of people when I do this exercise will say no. Then if I make it slightly more uncomfortable for them and I say, what if you've noticed that my flies are down or if you're a lady, you've come out the loo and you've got your skirt tucked into your knickers, are you going to tell me? At this point now, 50% of people are going, I'm staying well away from that conversation. And then I say, what if, what if, I, what if I smell? And they say, oh no, 70, at this point, 70% of people are going, there's no way I'm going to tell you. And I go, okay, so we sit next to each other all day and all day you decide not to tell me. Somebody else tells me at five o'clock and I turn to you and go, did you know I smell? And they go, <laughs> yeah, you've been smelling like that since nine o'clock this morning. Like, how, would, how do I feel now about you? You've I will feel like you've let me down. Yeah. And it was, I, so what stopped you telling me? Right. And so this is that difficult conversations are difficult for a reason. And so you've got to try and uh, practice it. You've got to try and celebrate when people have difficult conversations in meetings, when uh, you've got to build psychological safety. One of the most transformational things we did at Pier One was we instituted a rule called no triangulation. So as an executive team, we came to a decision that this is what we were going to do. We didn't tell the rest of the organization because we knew it was going to be difficult and we might trip up. But what you said was, you're not allowed to have a negative conversation about somebody unless they're in the room. Mm -hmm. So unless I come to you and say, Rebecca, Fred, blah, 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 blah. And then you can go, okay, Dom, it sounds like you need to have a conversation with Fred. I'm going to give you 72 hours to have it. And then I'm going to check in with Fred. And if you haven't had it, I'm going to tell Fred what you said. And that. so uh, we, we had people, we had somebody who left because that was too difficult for them. It was easy for them to agree to do it, but not possible for them to live it. And uh, it's hard. And I, I had somebody come up from one of our channel directors came over and I said, well, you, you know, I need, you need to go and talk to the sales director about that. 72 hours later, he was back at my desk. I can't believe you told him what I told him. I said, told you I was going to do that. He said, I can't work here. This is ridiculous. Okay, don't then. So he didn't, he left. But he'd, he'd spent all his life in corporate businesses where people play politics. Yeah. And nobody tells you honestly what they think. And I think if you want to build trust, then you have to... You have to have some vulnerability and you have to be able to take feedback as long as you have. So what else needs to be in place? Well, you need to be a team. You need to have purpose, right? You need, so you need to have a reason why all of this would make sense. Uh, you know, you need to have, you need to have some rules of engagement and we need to be able to keep score. And if these things that make teams, if these things are true about teams or games we play, then 
it's important for me, it would be important for me to, to get feedback from my colleagues so that I can be the best version of me. And then you, then you start to attract people to give you feedback. And you can sit people down. We do an exercise. We do lots of exercises where we might, uh, depending on how high we think the level of trust is in the team, we might start just by giving praise because often feedback it doesn't isn't ne just negative you know in gallup's q12 one of the one of the questions is have you received praise for doing a job well done in the last si seven days and when i was talking to jim harter who's the chief scientist at gallup he said look in one-to-ones if all you do is give praise you do a 10-minute meeting once a week and just give praise he said underneath praise means uh we've set clear expectations for each other we've been able to measure that you you said what you were going to do because otherwise I couldn't give you praise for doing a good job. And so, uh, so I like that, but there, but we often just get people to write down the top five things that this person does that helps us to become a high performing team. And I mean, people feel you sit there and people go, I don't feel very comfortable doing this. You're only telling them what you like about them. Yeah. Like, right, it's like let's, let's start with that. When, when, even before some teams just, have got have had so little practice at giving each other feedback so it's that unable to do it in the moment and so you have to try and create moments for them walk through it and get them to take baby steps before we get into them being radically candid or delivering feedback um and then often what you have to do is there will be some introverts in the room so you've got to stop the clock ask them for their input, make sure that they speak. Mm -hmm. Excellent advice. Now we've got, an, let's say we've got a, a business founder listening and they're thinking, oh, that feels incredibly uncomfortable. I love to give praise to my team. I'm very happy about doing that. But I know that I'm a little bit slow at picking up on things that I know need to be changed. What's your advice there? Because I always feel it's always good to nip it in the bud because your teams will see it, even if you don't see it immediately as a CEO. So what's your advice here? I, uh, we start many of the sessions with clients with a, the, uh, a session called Brutal Truths. So you can't make progress unless you've agreed on the truth. Mm -hmm. And, and so often people will start with their opinion. They'll write mm -hmm. their opinion on a post-it note and I'll take it down. I'll say, no, that's your opinion. I don't know. The company's growing too fast. Okay. That's your opinion. What is the fact? Yeah. And they go, and they'll go, oh, staff churn's too high. Okay. What's the fact? Right. And they go, staff turn, you know, we lost three staff last week. Okay. Fantastic. That's a fact. Now you have an opinion that's attached to that fact, which may or may not be shared by the people in the room, but the facts should not be debatable. They should just be the facts. And, and getting people to the same set of facts and then getting people to share their opinions about those facts is phenomenal. You just see where all the misalignment is. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that at the beginning of a session with clients is because otherwise people have got this, they bring this baggage with them, all of this stuff that's in their heads that, then, that they haven't ever said. And then that's their filter on the world. And so that nipping it in the bud thing often you know, if we're working with clients every quarter, often 
people will say they do a similar exercise each month. Okay. So, you know, what is it that you, what is it you're carrying around and not said? Um, and that might be about an individual, it might be how they made you feel. It might be about something in the business that somebody thinks is true and isn't true. But even just that, getting people to write the facts on a piece of paper, uh, a post-it note and stick it on the wall. You know, what are people thinking but not saying? What happened in the past that we need to forget? And just doing an exercise like that to try and clear away some debt can be really, really helpful. And then it's much easier to then, in the moment, not get stuck. Well, this is very much about leadership, this podcast. So all of this starts with the leadership team, doesn't it? Or the leader of the business. So very. do you think they have to do that own internal assessment themselves before they can before they can do this in an effective way? Uh, uh, yes, I, I think if you're going to do, uh, if you're going to do, if you're going to do it, you should show up and say, let's do it with me first, if you're the yeah. leader. So often we might do stop, start, continue. You get a piece of paper, split it into three, say, hello, I'm the CEO. I need you to write down what you think I should stop, start, or continue. Yeah. And then go around the room one at a time. Give me the continue because that everybody speaks and then start giving me the stops and starts, which are actually normally the same thing. One's written positively and one's written negatively and get some feedback and show your team that you are open to taking feedback before you ask them to do the same exercise. What has been your, your most radical stop that you've come across? I, I think I, we had a team that uh, sat the CEO down. They didn't actually do it in that session. Mm -hmm. But at the end of two days, they sat the CEO down and they said, um, we need to completely change our meeting cadence because the meeting cadence is actually disempowering the team because you're meeting with us in one-on-one -on -one and not as a team. And we need to do it differently. And I think that took the CEO completely by surprise and transformed the team. And so that there are times when you just, that's, that's a great outcome because you yeah. don't, often I don't see that coming at all. Yeah. You'd like the team to take more accountability and when it happens, it's great. Yeah, that's, that would be very opening, wouldn't it? That the, the CEO asked for that and received it and took it on board. So you have grown two businesses, as I said at the beginning, two 30 million each in a short space of time. You've been the leader of those businesses. What feedback have you had that you needed to change in yourself in order to successfully grow those businesses? Well, uh, when you talk about praise, I would say that uh, in both of those businesses, my Gallup, one of my Gallup strengths is top five is Achiever. So in Gallup strengths, you have a balcony and a basement and balconies, obviously the good bits and the basements, the bits that might come with it that might be a bit more negative. And so one of those is people with Achiever 
can have a tendency to not say thank you or celebrate success. And I've now intellectually, I know the value of a handwritten note to one of my team or saying thank you to one of my team and celebrating success. I just forget. Just don't do it. So my team would say, you're shit at this, Dom. And, and I'd go, I know, I'm, I'm trying really hard, but I just, I'm good at other things. And I just, so my team would write notes to people on my behalf and then tell me that they'd done it because that used my authority to say thank you and celebrate or celebrate success, knowing that I wouldn't be unhappy with them doing that. And so that was the, the team using me to grease the wheels, knowing that I wasn't ever going to be great at that myself you know and I'm in awe of people who write you know three handwritten notes every morning and I love it but oh, I can't do that it's just never going to happen I could wish it all day long it'd be like learning to learning to to uh, speak Spanish I wish I could speak Spanish it's just <laughs> not happening anytime soon <laughs> well thank you very much for sharing that because I think that just helps we all know that we've got areas that we're not we're not strong at and we can always delegate that task to somebody else don't have to have all the answers ourselves do we do you know what some people i mean in the gallop strengths you know empathy is number 34 out of 34 for me so that's that it's not that i don't have any empathy it's just absolutely not a strength of mine but there are other people who are absolutely amazing at it and so allowing them to play to their strengths is then I was going to say gets me off the hook, but it does because it's team. Business is a team game, right? So you don't say, oh, the goalkeeper doesn't say, oh, I really fancy being the striker. And the striker says, oh, let's go in goal because you'd let in more goals and wouldn't score any. You'd be defeated. So, you know, pick a position and play to your position. Yeah. Well, we've touched on execution. And thank you very much for sharing your tips and ideas on that. Let's switch to innovation because you said that was fundamental in you've been able to successfully grow the business. What does innovation mean to you? And maybe you could share some examples with us. I, I think you have in any business people who see the world not as it is, but the way it could be. Now, not everybody does that all the time. And there are different, you know, different parts to innovation. But you want, if somebody sees something is broken, and it could be done better or differently, then I want them to put their hand up and tell me that we could be doing this differently. You know, if, if we're trying to improve customer experience, so, you know, I would, I would get the new starters together because I think new starters in your business have a superpower. They, they see the world differently when they arrive. And so you're able to pick their brains for maybe six months. Like, what have you seen done better? What doesn't make sense? What seems strange? What have we just made too complicated? You can pick their brains and either get them to fix it or get somebody else to fix it. So that's really powerful because that builds a culture. You can make a contribution from day one. You don't have to have been here for a year. Yeah. Um, people can, you know, at Rackspace, we had all this memory, old memory from servers hanging around. And so somebody took it and put it in acetate blocks. So the staff, the staff rewards, the Rackstar awards, were had been designed by one of members of the team, recycling some memory into awards instead of, you know, a plastic silver thing that looks rubbish. Um, 
and you know all sorts of innovations one of my favorites was we uh we were top 50 places to work in europe and so i asked the employees there's a conference in copenhagen and i asked the employees who's made the biggest contribution to making this a great place to work in the last 12 months and two people sam and uh, annalise i think were were nominated to go to copenhagen and they came back with this idea which they said is called fluff fairies and I said, okay, what happens? And they said, we spot people in the organization having a tough time and we work out what we'd, ha we'd have to do to raise their spirits. And then we come to you for some money and we, do, we buy a thing and we put, it under their, we put it under their keyboard and we sprinkle fairy dust all over their desk. And then the company takes no credit. It's like the fairies have been. And so, you know, one lady, her mother was in South Africa and it was Christmas and the tickets were too expensive and she needed to go and see her because she was ill and she couldn't afford to go. So they came to me and said, right, we want some tickets, put them under the keyboard, sprinkle fairy dust over it, company takes no credit. And so that's just one of the, you know, an amazing impact on culture in the organization. And that's the, uh, you know, looking at an organ another organization where they've got an idea and bringing it in, you know, that's the, Innovation can be fixing something or stealing an idea or uh, changing something, but it's giving people an environment where they feel able to. And I think in lots of companies up to maybe about a hundred people, it, the organization's flat enough that the CEO bumps into somebody in the coffee, you know, the break area and somebody has a moan or they go at the pub and somebody has a moan and it gets fixed or somebody has an idea and over a hundred people, the, unless you put something in place, I think then the status quo around the way we do it is more valuable than changing. It starts to set in. And I, you know, I remember when I was at Glaxo, my boss saying to me, cause I'd said something about multi multivariant analysis and da, 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 and the marketing team were rubbish. And I could, I could have a better plan to grow the territory myself. And he said, you don't get paid to do that. You get paid to do what they say. And I'm like, oh, you're killing me. <laughs> and so I just, you know, it's it just stifling all of those ideas. You know, the best, the best in class is richer sounds, you know, the small yeah. audio mm -hmm. store. Yes. So before before there were Apple stores, richer sounds had the, the record for the highest revenue per square foot. Yeah. They get two suggestions per employee per month. And it's and it, that's the level of innovation that you should aim for. And we, you know, if you get volume within that volume will be some quality and if you get no volume then you just you just don't have an innovation culture you don't have people suggesting that it feels like there's a lack of pride you know that if if you're in if you get two per month then your employees care about you and you've created an environment where they're 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 thinking about your business in the shower and they come to work and they're like aha or they have their own experience and they go that was great we could do that we could do that for our customers. Here's how it would work here. Yeah. And those types of things are just gold dust. And I don't think it can be forced on a business because if you just put the pressure on everybody to come up with two ideas, that's not what this is about. It's that, it's that, it's that bigger picture, isn't it? You know, don't listen to this podcast and then go in and still ask your team to come up with two ideas a month because that it's much greater than that. It's about having that whole culture in the business that, goes beyond the, the ideas come out of what you've created as a culture they not do the but again i think 
the leadership team casts a long shadow. Yeah. And so in your week, entrepreneurs who are listening, in your weekly management meeting, see, whilst you can't get the whole employee base to come up with two ideas, I think it's entirely reasonable to say of your executive team, when we get to our weekly management meeting, I want everyone to come with at least two ideas, which they, of course, could either come up with them themselves or they could create in their teams some mechanism or something. It would be a measure of their ability to create innovation in their teams that they turn up every week with two things that they and their teams think would improve customer experience or execution or raise sales or drive down costs or something. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be a big thing. I mean, the yeah. idea, you know, it can be the smallest thing that's going to delight a client or, or a member of the team. Well, so. I, I also ask executives, including marketing and HR and finance, to speak to a customer every week. Oh, wow. And, it, and so if you speak to a customer every week, and if you speak to an employee in the organization who's not in your direct line of reporting, yeah then actually those two conversations are often the source of the two innovations that you need to bring on a weekly basis. Yeah. And, and if you, if, and what happens is just have innovation, the innovation becomes something that we do at the top, the whole organization will follow. And the, cause the leadership team cast this long shadow and what they do, everybody else does. Yeah. So I remember um, when I sold my previous business to, um, to a FTSE 250 business and they appointed an innovations director and being very entrepreneurial, I thought this is going to be amazing. We're, we're going to be different. We're going to approach our clients in a different way. This is exciting. But unfortunately, it didn't last very long in the role and he was never replaced. So this whole idea about bringing innovation into a corporate environment and sort of the example you gave, do you think we're beginning to see a little bit more of that? Do you think we're businesses a little bit more open to kind of creativity coming from their team and really encouraging that? I, I think if you're, I think if you're trying to, if you're measuring customer satisfaction and you're measuring employee happiness or employee engagement, then, uh, I can't think of anything more demotivating than, you know, like not putting these things in place. Your A players, you know, are five to 10 times more productive than your B players. And they will have things that they see that they want you to fix because it's obvious. And if you're just not interested, well, just go and work somewhere else. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just creating great environments where you outpace because this is a it's a bit like compound interest which is just fantastic you know you just turn in the dial a little bit every day um and your competitors aren't doing this and you are and they just never catch you up yeah because you just you're ahead all the time you're creating you're creating willingness to pay drivers for customers and you're creating willingness to stay drivers for employees and I'm sure there might be some industries where keeping A players for a long period of time is not necessarily impactful on your bottom line, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. You know, so attracting and retaining great staff 
is often a precursor for attracting and retaining the best customers. And I was talking to Fred Reichelt, the inventor of Net Promoter Score, and he said, Dom, the difference in the Net Promoter Score between two companies explains 85% of the migration of customers over time in a commodity industry. And it's just like, just mm. that, just, you know, it's playing the long game. Yeah. So on that note, what tips would you give? What practical tips from everything we've discussed? We haven't even gone into cash yet, have we? That, <laughs> I mean, maybe you have to come back and talk about cash because that was an incredible situation you were forced into with only 90 days of cash left. But what practical tips would you give our listeners around creating that amazing work environment? Because I'm so with you on this. It is key. It's fundamental to long-term growth. It's fundamental to creating uh, customers that love what you do and want to stay with you for the long term. So three three tips. Could you condense that into three tips for us, please, Dominic? Probably. I, I would say only hire A players. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the top 10% of available talent for a given job in a given location at a given salary. Make sure that the people you hire are better than, are at least as good as, or not better than your best people. And so often in small businesses, We've got Mary, she's amazing at sales. So we hire somebody cheaper and not as good. I don't yeah. know why. We've got no background in in development. Just hire another Mary. Uh, I think so often in growing businesses, we love the idea of promoting from within. It's absolutely great. But then what we do is we promote a sole contributor into the role of manager. Yeah. They hate it. We hate it. The team hate it. We lose our best performer because they're a rubbish manager. So don't do that. People should only be managers if they are amazing at managing people. Otherwise, keep them as sole contributors. And maybe linked to that is the way we compensate people often drives that behavior because the manager gets paid more than the sole contributor. So you can just have a sole contributor level that earns more than the manager. And then people would stay as the great engineer, the great salesperson, the great customer service person without feeling they have to be promoted. So being able to celebrate and reward your sole contributors and then only have people who are managers who are good at it. 85% of the staff engagement score comes from how good your manager is or not, as the case may be. And so, you know, hire well, have great managers, pay your sole contributors to stay in the sole contributor seat. That's an excellent idea. Like that. Thank you. Dominic, as we come to um, an end, how can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they find out more? What would you like to share with them? About- uh, if they go to monkhouseandcompany.com, there is a, we've got a scorecard there so they can take a quick quiz about are they ready to scale up or not, which will give them some insight. Uh, there's a, we do a weekly insights bulletin, which is lots of tips, do a weekly podcast. So I promise it's not rubbish. It's very easy to unsubscribe. Um, and it's the top top 100 Apple 100 entrepreneurship podcast. So the melting pot. And what I got an email the other day from somebody running a garage. Can't remember where, Berkshire, I think, or Herefordshire. Uh, anyway, he said he bought my latest book. And he'd done some of the exercises in the book and the most cynical person in his organization had take, had gone home and told his wife about it and his wife had bought the book. 
And so he just felt compelled to tell me about. So I love it when I get somebody emails me who the only thing they've done is read a book or read a blog or watched a podcast like you, I'm sure. It's just amazing that you're able to help people. So, you know, if I can help you in any way, then please get in touch. But otherwise, just consume the stuff that I create and hopefully it'll be helpful. Well, you've been very generous today sharing your ideas and concepts and thoughts and experiences with us. Huge value given. Dominic, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate it. And maybe come back and chat about cash. At some <laughs> oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed it, we welcome a review. And if you have any questions and like to get in touch with us, you can do that at the rjen.co.uk website.